Hey guys, be sure to check out patreon.com slash mentors, the number four MIL to help us out with this podcast by becoming a patron and supporting us. Jonathan Lambert is one of our biggest contributors and we want to give a big shout out to him. Now sit back and relax and get ready to enjoy another episode of Mentors for Military. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. Let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, first off, Michael, welcome to the show. We really appreciate hey. you uh, taking time to come on. And um, so right now, you're sitting up at the United States Military Academy, I take it. Absolutely. Okay. So you're a squadron commander there. And help me understand a little bit of what that means. Uh, well, West Point, obviously, uh, the preeminent leadership development institute, or institute in America. Um, we are the only academy that actually has an executive flight detachment. Um, the Air Force Academy has some airplanes, but we actually have uh, two Airbus CC-145 or UH-72 Lakota helicopters stationed here and uh, two airplanes. And all we do is executive travel for the superintendent and the West Point staff. And then, of course, West Point being a, a primary meeting place for a lot of dignitaries, heads of state, and elected officials. It's kind of neutral territory. Uh, anybody who comes to West Point then will we'll extend them the courtesy uh, via General Williams to ferry them into West Point. Also make a lot of trips to D.C. on behalf of the superintendent, a lot of landing at the Pentagon and into Reagan National for meetings and such. But oh, uh, yeah. yeah, pretty diverse. We also use the helicopters to support the cadets, uh, the, the cadet free fall parachute team. You know, we do flyovers for all the football games and drop the flag uh, for the football games. We do crazy stuff. We fly loads of fish seeding out to the lakes. I mean, it's pretty, pretty multidimensional guess I never really thought about it that much. I didn't know who supported you guys and didn't realize that you guys had your own, you know, aircraft there. That's it. So do you also do teaching? I understand that you do a little bit of side coaching on uh, some of the sports. So we do. It's not, uh, I do. So they have what's referred to as officer representatives, uh, basically meaning if you have an interest in mentoring the cadets, whatever uh, sports team they be on, one of their division one teams, uh, West Point's got every club, like every other academy, they've got every club and and team that you can imagine. Um, I played football in college a lot very well. So the football team kind of latched on to me. So I'm an officer representative for the football team and the swimming team and the baseball team. Now that game here, I mean, I just got to mention that game was I outstanding. I mean, it's been it really nice. It's a special nice. meaning when you're actually at one of the academies. I could care less, you know, all these years. I really just couldn't care. Yeah. But once you're here, then it sort of has a cultural significance. Oh, it really does. I'm not going to lie. It's been awesome to rub it in my Navy friends and Air yeah. Force friends when we win. <laughs> Even I do. I'm, I'm on board now. Yeah. You know, and, and very early on in my, you know, my military days and Army days and stuff, I, I just thought, you know, West Point Academy, when Army played Navy, you know, Back then, it was more of just, well, that's the academies playing one another. It didn't really represent anything. I think as the years you know, went on and everything, it took a different meaning. Um, and I think today, people really rally behind their branch of service. And that's one game where people really tune into. And the fact that CBS carries it nationally and it's become the game, the last football, college football game, you know, for the for the year before we go into the bowl season uh, it's taken on a greater significance, I think, now, too. Absolutely. And uh, like I said, I couldn't have cared less before I came here, but kind of living amongst the natives here, um, and I'm certainly not a West Point graduate. I'm not even qualified to get in here, yet I'm commanding and teaching class here. But um, the game has a lot of significance for both sides, and it's not just Army versus Navy. Once you get to see it, you know, you kind of see the lifestyle that, that the academies, the midshipmen, cadets, um, you know, however they're living. And you realize it's kind of representative of something a lot bigger. Yeah. Um, it's not just football. It's not just, you know, inter-service rivalries. And, uh, and then when you realize the kids, I say kids, anybody under the age of 30 or kids, you know, but when you realize the kids are playing, yep. <laughs> you know, other division one schools and, and I like watching other college football games. I mean, I don't watch too much pro. I can't really stomach it, but, uh, yeah. you know, most colleges are, they're playing for what you're supposed to be playing for, but even, you know, they have all aspirations going pro and, uh, the, the football players that I talk to, I kind of give them their preseason pep talk. I'm like, I have the utmost respect for you guys because you know what? It doesn't matter if you go 13 and zero. what you're getting is a set of lieutenant's bars. You're getting kicked out the door and you're going to have 30 snot nosed privates here to look up to you. So that's your big reward, nope. you know? So I kind of have a lot more respect for what you guys are doing because, you know, you're, you're not playing for, for a million dollar contract. You're playing for the same thing that the other 
you know, the other 4,000 cadets are going to get at the end of graduation. And I think that's primarily the reason why a lot of us started really heavily following is because when you started realizing what you just said right there, it makes you want to support them that much more, you know, because there is something bigger. And maybe it started after 9-11 as well and the impact that, you know, that had in military members uh, or, or I should say um, – uh, these academy uh, members and stuff, then graduating, and you hear about a story of how some of them may have gone on to combat and passed away, and so now they're giving some kind of uh, acknowledgement to them during the game, or you know, last year's center, or last year's running back, or two years ago, or that type. It starts really putting it in perspective of what's going on there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. Yeah, no doubt about it. So how was it you got that nifty little gig? I mean, was it one of these things so, that Branch just called up, or did you volunteer for that? No. Uh, as a matter of fact, I say probably 10 years ago, I was looking through all the, the list of the, the helicopter you know, the helicopter community managers, and they had West Point listed on there. And I kind of thought to myself, I'm like, well, no way, you know, no way in hell am I ever going to be qualified for that. What a cool place to go. Yeah. You know, I'd, give, I'd give anything just to have the, the bottom feeder job here. So lo and behold, about uh, – 15, 13 years ago or so, they started putting a, a 160th warrant officer as a commander of uh, the executive flight detachment here. And it just kind of gets handed off and handed off. And uh, so I'm actually the number number four in line. Um, it started by a gentleman named Dan Gelata, which he just recently retired. If anybody's familiar, he's, uh, he was one of the super elements in, in Somalia, uh, flying one of the Blackhawks. So he was, he was the first commander here. Um, he went on I, thought, great I thought things. I heard that name. Yep, yeah. he went on to do some great things at some other special mission units, and uh, and now he's retired. Um, but he kind of started that trend, so it's always been a 160th commander and a 160th first sergeant here at uh, Second Aviation. And so, um, I kind of it's just been sort of handed handed down to. I guess it's humbling because the guy before me, I had worked for him when I was a brand new co-pilot, and he said, "Hey, I want you to succeed me." And so he made the call, and I was going to retire and. In uh, 2016, I'd had enough. That was at 27 years, and I'm like, I'm out. I'm done deploying. And they said, Hey, you want to stay in? If you stay in, you can come, you know, command Second Aviation at West Point. And so I'm like, Well, what the heck? You know, who else gets to do that? Yeah, like yeah. I, I, a farm kid that barely graduated high school. Um, you know, who who else gets to experience that? So um, we were going to turn it down. We were stationed in Fort Lewis, so sold our farm, packed up everything, and moved as far across the country as you could possibly move um, to do this. And it's, you know, it's absolutely well worth the experience, broadening for sure. Like every warrant officer and NCO should come spend some time at West Point. It kind of gives you gives you a perspective. I don't think you're going to get anywhere else in the Army. I want to rewind a little bit here because uh, you mentioned something about um, how it is that you end up becoming you know, a commander there and what you may have to do prior to that. So let's start off with your, your military career. When, when you first came into the military, was it that your family members or something like that had served prior to you, or what was the reason why you decided to go into the military? So I had a really old dad, like he had me when he was old, but he was actually in world war two. So guys, my age don't usually have, you know, parents that were in world war two, but, uh, so I always got a good dose you know, that, that generation, that, that was their identity. That's their whole life. And oh, so yeah. I was surrounded by that and his friends. And, uh, so I always knew I never thought about doing anything else other than being in the military. I mean, I know exactly what I was going to do. I like to fly, which is a whole other side story, probably beyond this podcast, but, uh, how I ended up in that, but I always knew I was going to be in the military. I just didn't know what avenue that was going to take. And, uh, so by being a poor student, that choice was kind of shaped for me that narrowed down the options considerably. Um, so I was actually spent a year in college playing football. Maybe I think I lasted to the end of the semester and they asked me to please leave for the good of the institution. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so, so I finished, uh, finished that year at a community college that my mom taught at only because it was free. And then uh, of course that was in like 89 or 90 or 89. And I was still, uh, you know, everybody was still enamored with top guns. So I'm like, well, I'll go enlist in the Navy. And, uh, <laughs> You know, prior to that, you know, some funny side notes is prior to that, I had a seventh grade science teacher that said, you know, you're not smart enough to be in the military. And then uh, I interviewed uh, with a Naval Academy uh, recruiter, and I wish I could remember his name. Did you they, prove him wrong? I'd probably track him down. And he was so abrasive. He was actually an A6 pilot, and I can't remember his name now, but if I could find him. He oh, said, uh, you should. You should. He's like, yeah, your ACTs suck. He goes, your grades are horrible. 
He goes, you're a decent football player, but uh, he goes, not only are you not Naval Academy material, I'm not even sure you're suited for a career in the military. And that's what he told me. Whoa. So, wow. So, so with that, you know, I'm like, well, I'll go play football. I don't need you. Well, that didn't last. So then I just went and listed the Navy and I told him like, oh, I want to fly, you know, top gun. And the guy said, uh, Navy recruiter, you know, if I could find him too, we'd have some words. <laughs> he said, uh, he's like, oh, well you, you know, I can't get you into pilot school right now, but I can make you an enlisted air crewman. And that's just as good as being a pilot. Just you know? as good. Just, just as good. As good. Yes, so not only was yes. I not launching, yeah. Daisy Dukes and dog chains. <laughs> yep. So not only was I not launching <laughs> off the deck of a carrier, you know, a year and a half later, I was in Desert Storm as a crew chief on a CH-46 helicopter ferrying pallets of cheese balls and sodas back and forth, you know, at 120 degrees. And, <laughs> and to say I was irritable, stationed in Guam, no less, like a farm kid from Illinois. And that was my duty station was an island. It was 30 miles by 14 miles in the middle of the Pacific. Oh, man, I was irritable, irritable. Young and irritable and trapped on an island, you know, when everyone else is having the college days of their life and, and I'm on an island. And uh, so the catalyst for all that, and I will say I was expected to take some some Navy SEAL hits on this, but I'm going to start this out with. I, yeah, they're coming. I, yeah, they're coming. So a lot of my peers, you know, and I'll use that term loosely in some some uh, references uh, you know, I, I read some of this stuff and I hear a lot of, well, I was meant to do this, my destiny, blah, blah, blah. Well, I assure you, it was none of that. I was wrenching on a helicopter in the, you know, it was a hundred degrees and hundred percent humidity out there. And after flying, you know, I, I forget, I was changing the rotor blades or something like that. And I was an E3 or an E4 and this helicopter lands and these guys come off, you know, wearing UDTs and beards and big muscles and they just walked off. I'm like, who are those guys? One <laughs> somebody said, well, they're Navy SEALs. I'm like, well, what do they do? He's like, well, I don't know. I'm like, well, I don't know. If they're in the Navy, whatever job that is, I want. It's my job. <laughs> that's all it was. It wasn't patriotism. It wasn't chess beating. It wasn't my destiny. I was a fat band kid. So I went to my little, uh, you know, our little Navy counselor, career counselor. I'm like, hey, I want to be a Navy SEAL. He's like, do you really know? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Just give me the paper and I'll sign it. So eight months later, I was in Bud's. So not a whole lot of fanfare to that. I had to teach myself how to swim for Pete's sake. Yeah. Oh my God. So did you go through the first time? No, uh, no problem. Uh, actually I made it all the way through to second phase and I had a, I can't remember it was an infection or something like that. So made it through hell week and then I got rolled back to, to another class, just a, whatever infection it was just long enough for it to, to heal and then finished up with uh, second class. So I started in class 196 and finished in 197. Okay. Okay. And, I mean, it was not easy for me. That's, that's the other thing I kind of laugh when, you never hear anybody, you know, on LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever books or stories are telling. You never hear them say, "Yeah, I almost failed every day. I almost got kicked out of there." I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know what class you guys went through, but everybody I went through, you know, we were all getting beat down every single day and barely made it. So they must just be tougher than I was. I think. Now, what year was this? You're in the last hard class. Yeah, something like that. Uh, <laughs> Ninety-four. Ninety-four. Okay. Yep. Um, so now after that, you ended up going into SEAL Team 1, which is out of Coronado, right? It did. Yep. That was my first assignment and uh, ended up spending almost almost nine years there. And that's another little small island, but yet that's a beautiful location. You can't uh, beat that San Diego Coronado area. I don't think you can beat Coronado real estate. That's pretty good. When you can ride your, your uh, beach cruiser and flip-flops to work every day. It's, it doesn't <laughs> that what you, that. you can't do that at fort bragg no 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 without I'm pretty sure you'd get without, your ass kicked if you did yeah, something like saying, that. Get mugged. <laughs> <laughs> so you spent nine years with uh with so team one then yep i did an instructor tour as well but all in all yeah about nine years at this time frame let's see that pushes you forward to about what 2003 somewhere along that line 2002 okay and so in 2002, what happened? Something changed so, here. So uh, from the get-go, I hate to say this, but the whole SEAL team thing was actually just kind of a, I think it was a consolation prize because I didn't get to fly F-14s. I'm like, well, screw it. I'll go be a SEAL then. Um, turned out really well, but, you know, it's like the mob. You get in, it's harder to get out than you think it is. You know, just like SF, <laughs> Range Regiment, any of that. It's, it's not as easy to leave as you think it is, you know, both emotionally right. and, you know, you kind of get a little high and, all that kind of stuff. But, uh, so as a civilian, I kept flying. Like my passion really is flying. I mean, I, I grew up in a flying family. My dad actually owned a world war II airplane. I actually own it now. I bought it back in 2011. Um, so flying has always been my thing. I, I hate to say that the special operations thing was sort of a diversion. Uh, I mean, I've kept it with me, but 
my passion really is flying, which fast forward, you know, the 160th served all my needs. Still get to be in a soft unit and get to fly. So that, that fixed everything. But uh, so I was flying as a civilian part time when I was in the SEAL teams, you know, because there was no war on. So, you know, team guys are restless when you don't have a war. Everybody. Yeah. And that's when things get tore up and people Back. go to try. Yeah. Try being a yep. ranger specialist when a regiment when there's no war going on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, PT. So I was doing a lot of flying. I was actually towing banners and towing gliders and just all kinds of odd flying jobs, thinking, you know, that I would uh, uh, maybe some point get to the airlines. You know, I was trying to look forward a little bit. At that point, I wasn't quite sure. I'm like, this is a rough life. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to make it to 20. So uh, anyway, 9-11 happened, and I was actually deployed during 9-11. And so with the whole aviation airline thing, that just completely went away within the span of one day. Um, so at this point, you know, I was like, man, I got to. I got to figure out something else to do. <laughs> My wife had our first son. So unbeknownst to me, I was an E7 at the time. Um, she was actually a federal law enforcement officer. And unbeknownst to me, because I didn't pay any attention to the finances, I thought I was making a lot of money. In reality, my dumb little paycheck was just paying the utilities. She was actually supporting us. So, so you know, this ten fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a year I'm spending renting airplanes went away when we had a kid. And that was a shocker for me. I probably should have paid more attention to that. Yeah. So, so when yeah, we had a baby and she stayed home, yeah, I'm like, well, I got to actually find a real flying job if I want to keep flying. So, uh, you know, in the SEAL teams, we're, we're flying on 160th helicopters frequently. And uh, I kind of, as I've always done, as I found out the last 29 years, if someone, if I want to do something, I just go to the source. I'm like, hey, how do I get your job? What do, what do I have to do to have your job? And I've always found people to be helpful. Um, side note, I've always found if someone's intimidated by you asking how you get their job, then they're probably not very good at their job. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so I found a couple, <laughs> really, yeah, a couple really dependable, uh, useful 160th warrant officers. And like, hey, all you got to do is uh, put in for flight school, put into the warrant officer program, and uh, we'll snatch you up. So, again, much like the whole Top Gun thing, I sort of went into that blindly. And uh, while I was actually deployed, uh, started on my application uh, for warrant officer school. So I got back from the first combat deployment, I think I got back January or February of 2002. And, uh, by June I had, had orders. Congratulations. You've been accepted to the warrant officer program. And, and then I went and told the SEAL teams, which went over like a turd in a punch bowl. Oh, I can only imagine. I had, I had a couple good supporters that, that turned the tide. But, uh, so I called up, I called up the, uh, the one sixty recruiter. I'm like, Hey, I just, I just destroyed. I just got selected for E8 for senior chief. And I said, Hey, I just destroyed, oh, wow. just destroyed a 13 year career to come. So how do I get to the one sixtieth? And I think there was a little disbelief in his voice. Like maybe he was kidding and he wasn't serious. And he's like, yeah, just, uh, get through instruments and give me a call. Um, his name was Ricky star. If he's ever out there, he's pretty funny, funny guy. But, uh, I'm like, that's it. I just destroyed my career. And that's all you say is call your instruments, you know? So I look at my wife and I'm like, all right, well, let's pack up. Let's leave beautiful Coronado for enterprise, Alabama, Woo-hoo! Which, which we did. Mother Rucker. I went out about a week ahead of time and I'm, I got there like midnight and I'm driving through and I'm like, she's going to divorce me. Like <laughs> you know, my first experience in the Southeast, it's first time she'd ever been, it's like a hundred degrees, a hundred percent humidity at 11 at night. And I'm like, she's, She's going to get rid of me if I bring her here. Hey, the plus, though, is you're like, what, two hours away from the beach, though? Yeah, but yeah, it's really good for your skin. Yeah. <laughs> I hear it's good for your hair. <laughs> but uh, but <laughs> so that's that's how I got to flight school. And uh, uh, it was actually really that, that year we spent at Fort Rucker, the first in the Army. And before that, I always mocked the Army heavily. And now I'm, you know, like in the middle of the entire enterprise of it. But uh, that ended up being the best year, year you know, 13, 14 months that I had ever known because, you know, I had got to fly every day for free. It didn't cost me anything. Um, you know, some of the dumbest people I ever met, I met in flight school. So, so I was in the middle somewhere, you know, it wasn't the top, wasn't the bottom. And uh, you, Did have you guys no get response. to pick some dirt out of rocks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have absolutely no responsibility except just to show up every day and, you know, have your academics. You're not responsible yeah. for anybody but yourself. So, so it was, it was pretty euphoric. Um, so I got halfway through flight. So I finished instruments just like Ricky Starr told me. And I, so I called him up again. You know, this is almost like email was in its infancy. It wasn't really, you know, there was no such thing as texting or anything like that. Everything was still typewriter written. And I'm like, Hey, Mr. Starr, this is Michael Rutledge. I just finished instruments. He goes, what, who is this? 
Like, no, 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 don't do this to me right now. <laughs> you don't remember? Yeah. What? I'm like, well, remember I was a SEAL that you talked to and I had to refresh me. He's like, oh, okay, you just finished instruments? He goes, all right, well, I'm going to send you an application packet and just mail it back to me. And so he did. And uh, so I didn't tell anybody that I was applying for 160th flight school because if you know anything about the regiment, you know, even back in that day, there were there were no W1s. There's nobody coming out of flight school. Well, highly highly experienced guys. Yeah. Um, you know, they they'd done a couple tours in the army, had a couple hundred hours of night vision goggle time. I mean, there were there was no amateurs in there. The, the regiment's just not resourced to to teach new guys how to fly. Um, but I didn't know that. I thought that was cock of the walk, you know. So 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 I went along with it and uh, filled out the application and actually. I was so dumb about how the army worked and, and protocol because the Navy is significantly different. And certainly the SEAL teams are smaller. You could walk into the, the commanding officer who was an 05 at the time. And, you know, it was not a big deal. You don't do that in the army apparently. And apparently not at a trade dock installation either. So, so I just yeah. walked into the, the battalion <laughs> commander, you know, who had, it was like six stories up and no flight school student ever set foot in there. And I just had this, I was kind of a jackhole, I think. Uh, I said, hey, sir, I've got this endorsement for, I need your endorsement for this, this 160th assessment. And he was an aviator, so he's like, well, people don't do that. I'm like, well, this guy right here, Colonel Reap, that signed this, he said that I will. So I'm going to need your signature on that, or I'm going to need you to give him a call and uh, tell him that I can't come up. So, yeah, you are bold. Oh, my so, God. So it wasn't that like, it's not me, wins. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, not me, sir, it's Colonel Reap. Whoever this Colonel Reap is, that's the guy. It's kind of <laughs> funny. the messenger. Yeah, that's just Colonel Reap today, uh, one of my favorite officers I ever worked for. and uh, But I didn't know him at the time. He just turned out to be a good dude. So he signed it, and, uh, of course, then I got the walk of shame. Nobody at Fort Rucker would talk to me anymore. I was like – so I sent it in, and uh, at this point, it, somehow, I was actually number one in my flight school class, and we were getting close to selection. And Rick Starr called me back and said, hey, you've been – you know, your packet was approved. We're going to send you some orders. You're going to come up and assess. When do you have a bubble? It's like some time in between graduation. And he goes, well, what do you think you want to fly? And of course, I'm like, like everyone else, I'm like, I want to fly Little Bird gunships. He's like, yeah, so check it out. You're going to fly Chinooks. Then <laughs> <laughs> why ask? <laughs> I know. I know. I, there, there's guns I, in, in retros- this, though, too. <laughs> yeah. In retrospect, uh, I was told that that was the wrong answer. The right answer was, I will fly anything to the needs of the regiment. So <laughs> sure. I screwed that up as well. But that was a test I didn't see that was coming. <laughs> So, so he said, Hey, hey, if you get selected, you're going to fly MH 47s. I'm like, that's fine. Happy to be there. Um, so I was number one in the class and I think it was like a week later, you know, they got us all in a room and everybody had pick, you know, based on your order of merit, pick your helicopters. And so at that time I was a little bit scheming. So they said, all right, you're number one. What are you going to pick? And knowing full well that I was going to go fly 47s, I picked Blackhawks. I'm like, I want to fly Blackhawks. He's like, you can't do that. We, we know you're going to go fly 47s. I'm like, yeah, but that's what you get when you're number one. You get options when you're number one, you know? So, <laughs> again, I'm, I'm burning, I've toned myself down considerably, but I, I'm burning bridges like as fast as they could be built at Fort Rucker. Well, with the SEAL team as well, by leaving them. Yeah. You know, the- so, there's, remind me, there's a message behind that. I, I refer to it as burning your lifeboat. So, <laughs> yeah. it's a mo- it's a, I don't recommend it, but it's it's a motivating factor. Oh, yeah. So I did the Blackhawk qualification course, you know, flew it for like 70 hours and then, uh, graduated from Blackhawk course. And, uh, <laughs> and then we graduated, they sent me up to Fort Campbell and processed the 160th as a W1, the only one to do it. And again, I haven't gotten slapped in the face yet. So I think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread because at that point, nobody demands anything of you. You know, the bragging factor is high. You haven't had to pay any bills yet. Mm-hmm. That's coming. So I in process, moved the family up there in process, actually by all their accounts, somehow, you know, I smoked the assessment for, for my experience level. So confidence is getting higher and higher. And, uh, so I in process and it was funny. Then they turned me around and sent me right back down two weeks later to Fort Rucker to go through the Chinook course. So, so if you think <laughs> Fort Rucker was angry at me before, I came back down, you know, wearing a one six. Remember me? Wearing it. One six You know, the assault boots, all the things that you can't wear for a rucker that the one sixtieth issues you. You know, it looked like the one sixtieth supply mill van threw up on me. So <laughs> Hey you guys, I traded my UDTs and hair product for some aviator Oakleys. So <laughs> what's up? <laughs> so I show back up there, do the Chinook course, go back up to uh Fort Campbell 
and uh, and they're like, hey, your MH47 course is going to start for like six months. Do you want to go through uh, the MH6 course, the Little Bird course? Because it was like three weeks long while you're waiting. I'm like, sure, I'll do that. So so I go through their MH6 course, and they had some what they call V-tails. They weren't gunned up or anything. They just used them for local training. Um, so I went through that course, and uh, so now it's getting – I'm still a W1. and So you know, you're, ar- you're already learned how to fly a Blackhawk and a Little Bird. And you're, yeah. and this is all why you're just kind of piddling around. It gets better. It gets. <laughs> it's the only time I can claim I actually pulled one over on the army. I think this is pretty impressive. Honestly. I think they got. I think they got their uh, their green or the pound of flesh on me. But uh, in the history of the one sixtieth, was there ever a W one prior to you that came in the door? So a couple of years before me, there was a, a special forces guy, um, very very capable, legendary American. Uh, who went through as a W one and he did a full career there. Um, actually retired out of a special mission unit. Um, and that was an anomaly, like a true anomaly. Mm-hmm. Uh, after nine 11, they said, Hey, let's go. Can we, is there any benefit to take an operators? Same thing, you know, special forces, guys, Rangers, PJs, seals. Is there any benefit to taking these guys who know the mission and teach them how to fly versus taking a, a 2000 hour pilot and trying to teach him the soft mentality. Mm-hmm. So there was, I can't remember, there was three or four of us. Um, I was the first one of that group, but you know, it turned out to be a successful, um, turned out to be a successful test. I don't think they really plan on it anymore. I think really 10 years down the road is six of one half as those the other. Um, but that was, I was kind of like the first one that they latched onto to, to prove it. And, you know, just like, I won't even go there, but just to like make sure any other, program is a success you know they they picked three or four different guys you know one was a uh, 275 guy one was a fifth special forces guy or was me you know they they picked guys that they were very specifically going to make the program successful oh, yeah. um so anyway that worked so i finished the uh, the little bird course and i'm waiting i think i got four more months left until my chinook course starts I'm like now ah, we found a shortfall you're starting next week so I never, never flew a Blackhawk again, never flew a Little Bird again, started the MH-47 uh, Green Platoon course, and uh, that lasted six months. And then, and then it got real. Then it wasn't quite so much fun anymore. Um, I mean, it was, that's, that's where they make Night Stalkers, you know, it's, it's no joke training uh, still to this day. But, yep. but my biggest wool that I pulled over the Army, I'm like, I completely stole for your Army. And I'm pretty sure in the history, I was a... And I, I had since gotten qualified in the Army fixed wing too, Mike. So, as a as a W one, I was rated in a Huey. This is like less than a year out of flight school. A Huey, a Blackhawk, a CH forty seven, an MH forty seven E, and a G, and an MH six Little Bird. Jeez, it's so, pretty <laughs> impressive. Still, I can't <laughs> stop saying that. But I mean, I'm wow. <laughs> so. I am certainly not a Jedi Knight or anything. It's kind of literally one of those, you know, right time, right place. And, and, uh, of course the other guys in my class who are all very experienced aviators and they're like, Hey Midas, don't get near me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in this green platoon class, that's where everything changed because, uh, there was actually another W one in there who, who I long consider probably a way smarter guy than me. Super, super dude. He was actually the two seven five guy. Um, but the rest were multi-thousand-hour standardization instructor pilots, flight leads. I mean, they were there was some some talent there. And then you realize when you're in that group, you're like, all right, you know, I can I can swing a gun, but I think I'm out of my league. Um, the only thing that kept me above board at all was I had a pretty substantial amount of civilian flying time. So I mean, I had some aeronautical sense, but but the mission and the complexity of the MH47 was completely overwhelming. I mean, it took me a couple years to kind of get to get the momentum going where I wasn't so much of a liability mm-hmm. six months. And it was hard. And again, that was one of those things where, um, my, my demeanor and my, my, uh, swagger diminished considerably during that six months. Um, cause then it, it actually got real. And then, you know, once you get a face full of, Hey, this isn't just flying cool black helicopters, you know, who you're carrying and what you're doing and, and the whole mentality of, you know, absolute no fail. You know, there is no such thing as, as failure and all those things that, that go with it. Um, it makes it quite not as much fun, very rewarding, but it makes it quite as not, not as jovial, you know, as, as the previous two years as I was used to. Right. So I graduated green platoon and I checked into second battalion, uh, B company of second battalion, the, the bad boys. And, uh, I had said something snippy somewhere. You're sensing a theme. I had sent something snippy to one of the crew chiefs during green platoon. And, uh, I think he, 
you know, because I was a helicopter crew chief. I think at one point I walked back and he said, hey, can you man this gun for me? I did something. And I think I did it for, I don't know, five minutes or something like that. He goes, what you think? And I'm laughing because I'm thinking I'm amongst team guys. I'm like, well, I think you're overpaid, you know. So that, <laughs> oops, I didn't think anything about that. But that followed me about three months later. And I had no idea. So I checked into to B Company and uh, they had their head their head enlisted crew chief or head enlisted flight engineers, a guy named Woody. And I can get a message from him every once in a while. And at that time he was probably 280. And, uh, and he was one of the first sergeants. And so I checked in with my little folder and I'm like, Hey, Sergeant Woody, uh, Mr. Rose, he goes, I know who you are. He goes, you're the guy who thinks we get paid too much. So, <laughs> so kind of know, like you see the movies where a tsunami where everyone's sitting there, on the beach, having a good time. Right. And then all of a sudden it just gets eerily quiet and people start running. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't see this coming. So I'm just sitting in a classroom and all of a sudden I see guys just kind of start filtering out slowly. And of course, you know, in comes 15 crew chiefs and five minutes later, I'm, I'm duct taped to the ceiling with a beach ball taped to my head and <laughs> no eyebrows, and, you know, usual. <laughs> Uh, welcome to the unit. Wait. Lots, of, lots of bruises. Yeah, that was that was my welcome uh, to the operational side of the 160th. And, and truly, after that, um, you know, it's pretty wholesome. I say in military terms, pretty wholesome environment because at that point, had there not been a war on, I think it'd be vastly different, just like the SEAL teams. But you know, guys are doing 60 on, 60 off, like everyone else in special operations, rowing the boat. So not a whole lot of time for shenanigans. Like, hey, you're young. We know you're stupid. We don't even know anything about it. We're going to pair you up with the most experienced instructor pilot we got. And I think nine or 10 days later, I was in Bagram, you know, flying my first direct assault as a co-pilot, mm. um, you know, and then it just kind of progresses from there, you know, 14 years later. What about uh, some of the SEAL guys that you had left on SEAL Team 1? Did you ever run into those guys again? So, you know, even in the SEAL teams, guys move around to other commands, you know, with, within Naval Special Operations. So that very first direct assault, you know, we're sitting out there on the ramp of Bagram at sunset. And uh, these guys started rolling, you know, and I knew we were, we were carrying seals, but I had my hands full, you know, just trying to be a co-pilot because one, as a co-pilot, you're not even allowed to interact with the customers, which was kind of counterintuitive since I just left them, but still that's the way it is. And, uh, so these guys started loading in the helicopter and here comes the best man at my wedding, sticks his head up through the companionway of the 47, you know? So, I mean, I, I probably saw more of my friends I was in the teams with, you know, flying assaults than I probably would have had I actually been in the teams. Yeah. Um, that's just kind of a common theme. And, and, uh, that's very much like the one sixty. for, for whatever reason, you know, there are certain companies in the one sixty that end up being paired up with a very particular ranger regiment or a very particular special forces group. And so our region, we were operating in Afghanistan, which is very particularly, um, with the, the seals, you know? So, I mean, I spent the next 12 or 13 years, you know, basically hanging out with my buddies. I say hanging out. That's a, yeah, that's a soft term, but <laughs> loosely, loosely. Yeah. <laughs> also, also did a couple really, really fun deployments with the Ranger regiment guys. Um, yeah. so, I mean, it was, it was very rewarding, but yeah, I, I still keep very, very close ties. Um, you know, with my seal brethren, the ones that, that we get along, but people forget too. I don't have that much gray hair. Yeah. But, uh, I'm like, yeah, they're like, well, you see your buddies all the time. I'm like, well, actually my buddies are all, you know, rear admirals or O sixes or, or command master chiefs, and we're all retiring. I th I thought you was going to say they're all booby stars and book writers. I see them well, often. Uh, there there are, and like I said, that they may be a beer discussion. There, <laughs> all I can tell you is, um, there are some there are some legit American heroes out there that you see in the in the media. Um, I won't name them off because they know who they are, and they're, uh, but they're they're pretty few. Um, certainly not. The percentage, like everyone says, you get your 10%. Well, there's 10% of the of legit ones. Every community's got that. A few episodes back, we had Glenn Doherty's best friend, Sean Lake, on the, the show with us. And you said you had a, uh, a professional career with uh, with Glenn Bubbs. Cool. Yeah, he was he was a little junior. That His era was uh, kind of right as I was leaving the teams. But He's probably more of like my age. Yeah. Group. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> Hey, Eric, it's okay. I'm vintage that. too. Everybody keeps saying I'm young. I'm 38, so I'm I'm right there with oh, you. Oh, that's that's old. Yeah, I'm told I'm the last surviving Desert Storm veteran in West Point, which doesn't excite me. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question because I mean I I think that uh, 
based on having been on a seal and then having moved over to the one sixtieth, how did that uh, help correlate your ability to you know fly a little bit more proficiently? Did did it help you? You think a little bit so as far as insertions and echo? I don't. Uh, I don't think experience in the seal teams or any other special operations ground force unit actually does anything for your flying ability. Um, what it does. Okay is it gives you a very unique sense of urgency and perspective on, on what your customers are enduring. Um, you know, had I never done it, you know, if, if I land, whatever, I'm like, oh, I'm not quite on the target I told him I was going to land on. doesn't mean a whole lot to me, but, <laughs> but to a guy who's carrying a, a 90 pound ruck through the sand, you know, in the, the silt yeah, of Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah. That's like a half mile, you know? So, so it forces you to kind of be a little more careful uh, in your planning and your execution, you know, and make sure you're not screwing somebody on the ground because it can range from being annoying to them to catastrophic. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's just really, it's just perspective more than anything else. You probably are a lot more sympathetic, um, you know, and certainly when we had missions where there are, you know, injuries or KIAs on the ground or something like that, I mean, you probably to the detriment um, you get much more emotionally tied to it uh, than because you, you can picture, you know, you can picture what's going on. You can, you can have that graphic image in your mind of, of what the ground guys are going to, whether they're your friends or not. And, uh, and really uh, the way the one sixty does it is you spend a lot of time uh, living with your customers. You're in the same compound, you know, you see them every day. Yeah. Just, you you kind of form a bond with them, no matter what kind of uniform they're wearing. And so when things go sideways, you know, for better or worse, um, you really kind of get emotionally attached uh, to your customers. I think vice versa. Um, there are, you know, we've done some pretty pretty historic missions where where the customers are like, hey, we're not me personally, but you know, like, hey, we that crew we flew with, that's the crew we want. We don't care how you juggle it up, but you know, that's the Black Hawk or that's the Chinook we want to ride on. And you know, when you're doing things of those nature, you find out that you get very habitual and very ritualistic and everything from yeah seat you're on the helicopter to where you set your gloves and how you put your kit on and and all that so um that can yeah. only help no doubt help there, I, yeah i think that there is a superstition to that stuff as well too i mean obviously i don't have the experience with regards to like where i sat necessarily always on a, a, an aviation uh set but definitely uh, i share that sentiment going on uh ground ground pound yeah, totally, uh, Eric. And I think, you know, no matter what soft unit you're in, if you were to go into aviation, you've just already had precision, no fail, you know, two makes war, you know, two is one, one is none, all those little mantras you live exactly. by. Exactly. I mean, that's just, it's just kind of beat into you and it can't help but permeate, you know, how you fly and how you prepare. So it, I think it's a pretty good fit. It's not for everybody, but, and of course, not every soft guy makes a great pilot either. It's, it's very case by case. <laughs> uh, deck commander, that was an Apache pilot. <laughs> I guess he decided that Apaches weren't his thing anymore and came over to the uh, GB side of the house. How easy was it for you to, to leave the, the Navy and get into the army? Because in, in the UK, that's, that's quite a difficult thing for people to do, you know? And despite having an SF background and going into another um, soft specialist uh, role. People would find it difficult to do in the UK. It is. So it was administratively, you know, that was almost before the age of computers, you know. So it was administratively difficult and cumbersome, um, but more so that was right after 9-11. And there was actually a stop loss on SEALs, EOD. I can't remember the other, you know, specifics in the Navy, but said no move, can't get out. So... I applied to transfer to another service at the very time where they said, Hey, no seals can leave. And so, um, I guess it's kind of a, an example of, of tenacity and that, uh, you know, my, my company commander said, no, my, uh, commanding officer seal team one said, yes, you can do it. It got sent up to uh, the Bureau of Naval personnel. The seal community manager said, no, it got turned down by two other people. And then a gentleman at that time, uh, Captain Carlson, 06 type, he had been my CEO at SEAL Team 1 about five years previous. And he and I had had a good relationship. I was an E5, so I'm not sure how I impressed him. But uh, so everybody said no. It wasn't looking very favorable. And Captain Carlson said yes. And so it only took one guy. So I went through five people who said no. And then it just went to the one guy who had to say yes, and it was approved. So once that 
was approved, it went pretty quick, went back to the army and went to selection board. And of course, you know, the army was at that point was facing the war of attrition. They were afraid they were going to lose all their pilots, you know, as the war was kicking off in Iraq and all that. And, uh, so, you know, they were, they were assessing a lot of, a lot of aviator, war officer aviators. And, uh, so, you know, like I said, it was, it was administratively burdensome, but not that hard, but kind of a lesson of, uh, you know, if you take your first no, you're probably going to get screwed and you're probably going to end up in your factory job for the rest of your life. That's the moral of that story, I think. Every one of those points, you know, they kept saying, hey, it's, you know, do you really want to forward it? It's just going to get no all the way up. So I'm like, oh, yeah, keep keep forwarding it. You know, we're not done with this yet. <laughs> we don't know already what we got to lose. Yeah. I left Fort Campbell in uh, 2006 and went out to Fort Lewis and actually was one of the plank owners to start up 4th Battalion out there. So the first time we had 160th assets on the West Coast. You've transitioned now into uh, the military academy, but you're getting ready to make more of a life transition now at this point because you're headed out of the military like all of us do. At some point, you're going to make a transition. I know. It's pretty scary, actually. Well, I mean, you've got yourself pretty uh, set up, though. I mean, because you've always lived a life of aviation or enjoyed that, you've got things kind of set out as to what your your plan is or what it is that you want to do. Well, if you haven't, if you haven't sensed a the theme, I don't really like charging my desk, leaving my destiny in the hands of other people. Yeah. Um, I was always the guy who kind of raised me in aviation. Who's, who's since passed, but one of my, you know, father figures, he always said, Hey, if you, if you absolutely have to pull a rabbit out of the hat, you should probably spend some time putting a rabbit in the hat. So sounds pretty absolutely. simple, but I, I kind of always stuck with that. And so I've always had a five-year plan, a three-year plan and, and never once have any of those plans actually worked out. Not a single detail <laughs> of it. <laughs> But I learned and best like, laid plans else. go to crap. Yeah. But I learned like you have to have a plan to deviate from. If you don't have a plan to deviate from, then you're just making stuff up on the fly all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, all my plans, I started 18 planning. None of it happened where I am right now. Absolutely. None of it occurred according to my plan. <laughs> Guilty. Yeah. But at least I had, you know, I had some, something to go off of. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I knew I was wanted a career in aviation. And so, you know, I say almost 10 years ago, I started working towards it because you never know at that time, you know, I could have retired at 20 in 2010. So, you know, it's, it started for a while. Um, and I always knew I was going to be in aviation. So I started, you know, working for that and kind of made a list of, Hey, these are the qualifications I'm going to need. This is the timeline I'm going to need to accomplish them in between deployments. Um, knowing full well that I wasn't going to leave the 160th and then deploying life was, was always going to happen. You know, in addition to raising a family and all the complexities and challenges that go with that. So I didn't know exactly what I was going to transition to. I knew it was going to be aviation. And then, you know, I knew I was a pretty good, pretty good leader and manager. So I, you know, try and back it up because you're not always going to have a, a, uh, a flight physical, you know, a bust a leg or something like that. And then you really have to find a real job. You can't fly. I just always kind of looked forward and I, I was always planning for the day that I thought would never come. If that makes any sense. Oh Yeah. I was told by a, by a guy one time, too, I, I live my life by people's wise words, I suppose. And he's like, hey, check it out. He goes, a life in special operations? He goes, it's like being a supermodel or an NFL player. He goes, you can't do it forever. It's got a shelf life. And so once you kind of realize that, that's sort of a grim reality, you know, whether it's physically or you just get, you're not relevant anymore because you're 45 and you can't keep up, you know, with everyone else or your liability or whatever the case may be, but it's got to end. And so once you... Once you realize that, that it's got to end, that makes it a little easier for you to look forward, you know, maybe if no other reason out of fear. Um, I also had a very wise command chief warrant officer at the 160th when I got all butthurt about, you know, I couldn't get what I wanted, this and that. He's like, hey, Mike, check it out. He goes, you need to understand, you need to not be in love with the Army because the Army's not in love with you. He goes, the Army's a business, and we make business decisions. So, you know. Believe it or not, you, know, you kind of get hurt at the time, but once you put it in that perspective, like, okay, it's, it's an inanimate object. It's not, you know, it's not a family. You're very close to the guys and girls that you work with, but the enterprise itself is not, you know, it's not a loving, nurturing mother. It's, it's a, it's a corporate factory like everything else and they have a job to do. And, and so once I got that in my head, there, there's some, been some pretty wise senior guidance I've, I've gotten that kind of helped me get the mindset of, Hey, you know, don't be that guy and you know, have retirement three months on the horizon and not prepared for it. Yeah. I mean, my co-founder, uh, Herb Thompson just created a, an article about this with regards to the soldier for life, uh, concept and the fact that, you know, while we may be soldiers for life in the fact that yes, we served and you know, we, we've got that camaraderie, 
you are not a soldier for life. Like you, like once you're out of the army, <laughs> yeah. the army can't take care of you really anymore. And that was the point. And like some people got butt hurt with it and thought that he was like downplaying the fact that you're, you know, you're no longer a soldier or whatever. But it was more so to the point that the, once the uniform's gone and once you're out, it is a business and they no longer have that relationship with you. Well, that's the hardest part of transition, right? You've got to, you got to identify or find a new identity. It is. And finding your tribe, I think, is the biggest challenge. But uh, it's kind of fun. I do some uh, some leadership keynotes for a couple of different organizations that ask for it. And one of, the, one of the things I tell them is when you're assessing your leadership skills, if you absolutely think that your organization, if you're convinced it cannot survive without you there, it's time for you to go, brother. Like that should be your number one cue. When you think the whole, the whole <laughs> house is going to crumble without you there, um, you're probably the least useful one there because that means you're probably a grouchy cynic. Um, the Michael true. Scott. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, you know, I could stay longer in the army. Um, you know, I could take CW five and I could stay in, but I'm like, I- I'm going to be that grouchy warrant officer. I promised everyone or that I complained about when I was a W one or W two. So that was some more, some more pretty, pretty wise words that I, I learned the hard way. And it's true. If you look at any unit, you know, we think we're indispensable, any, particularly any soft unit where, you know, you get an identity of fifth group or whatever, ranger battalion or whatever seal team, you know, you think, Oh gosh, they'll totally miss me. And I learned that a dynamic organization, if they don't forget your name within two months, they're doing something wrong. Like, especially now everything should be moving fast enough and dynamic enough that, I mean, I, I'll be disappointed if someone laments about me six months down the road. So I'm, I'm prepared to not get it. I'll make sure it. to, I'm going to put it in my calendar. Yep. I don't need to be enshrined or moralized or, you know, I mean, and you kind of think when you look around, you're like, well, I don't know, there's, there's been guys here since 1955 and nobody's name's on the wall. So you mean they haven't already built a statue of, yeah. of you back at Fort Campbell no, or anything? Of, of Patton and Eisenhower, but I don't think they're going to do a CW4 Rutledge statue. <laughs> it's because you don't have a mustache. You've got to have a proper warrant mustache it's and true. then they'll do that. It's, or an ivory handle 45. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. But you're absolutely right. And uh, I, I actually talk to uh, my peers and wife every once in a while. Some of my guy, friends that are retired, I'm like, dude, what, how are you handling this? They're like, the water's great. Come on. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't feel great. It feels pretty anxious, actually. And uh, and, and I realized, and I've, I've read some pretty good stuff from, from friends of mine, and I know I'm going to have a living. I know I'm going to feed my family, put my kids through college, and all that kind of stuff. It's just the change is so different, so dynamic. And, and I think the key to it, as I found out, is number, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I have a purpose. So I had to find a job that had a purpose because I don't care what MOS you're doing in the Army or whatever military service. I mean, you have a purpose. Um, yep. You know, if not in your neighborhood, then, you know, within the service, you know, protecting your country, what, whatever you want to look at. But you just got to find your tribe. You, you know, you whatever that looks like really? for you on the outside, yep. whether it's hanging out at the VFW and drinking beer or, you know, being a volunteer police, you know, deputy or sheriff's deputy or something like that, whatever that looks like for you. School monitor. Yeah. School monitor, <laughs> boy scout leader, whatever, you know, we've spoken about this um, a few times on a couple of different podcasts. And I think a lot of the time when people struggle, when they get out is because they expect people in the civilian world to come to them, you know, and, and be like them. Whereas the reality is when we leave service, we've got to adjust back into the civilian world and not expect everybody in our locality to, to turn into us, you know, and, and people need to get their heads around that and expect it almost because otherwise they just become more and more disgruntled as it doesn't happen and get more and more bitter about it. And then the tying back into what you said about expecting the military to remember you, you know, and you, you, you talk to your friends who are still in, and the wheels turned. It's moved on, you know. And yeah. you're no longer part of that world. And <laughs> I've been totally to the G one. Who wants to touch me? Yeah, totally agree, <laughs> Scott. And so I got a, I got a, I've gotten some great lectures. I think I've been fortunate and always get good lecturing um, from the right people. And I had a guy tell me, you know, about retiring because he was retiring. And so I listened intently, thinking someday I'm gonna have to use that expertise. And he's like, you know what you are right now. I'm like, what? You know, I think he's going to give me some big insight. He's like, you're a badass MH-47 assault pilot, 160th SOAR, Navy SEAL. He goes, you know what you are when you retire? I'm like, no, what? He goes, you're a pilot. You know, so that's it. <laughs> Thanks. He goes, yeah. He goes, you're a pilot. 
And so are the other 200,000 dudes out there. They're looking for your job. Have you seen the uh, the coffee cup or are there some other memes that are out there where if you watch Game of Thrones, when, uh, you know, Daenerys, you know, the whole spill of when they, they announce her and it's like 45 minutes long of all of her titles and everything else. And then it's that just the blonde girl that's always naked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That one. And then, uh, I don't know. Then it's just, I'm Jon Snow. Period. <laughs> That's it. So yeah. that's that's kind of it. And you're right. I mean, I think when everybody makes that military transition, that's part of that identity they leave behind. I mean, you're just going to be Michael Rutledge when you walk out the door. Sure, you're a pilot. That's a skill that you have that goes along with it. But now you've got to create that new tribe, that new identity, that new world in this new space. Yeah. And of course, you also realize then that uh, your income is largely performance based, which it's not always the case in the military. You know, we all know the military is kind of a, a case of socialism at its best. Uh, uh, yep. <laughs> you know, so there's guys that excel in the system and there's guys that take advantage of the system. But, uh, you know, in three months, I know that uh, my, my entire income and supporting the family is going to be completely based on how hard I work and how many hours I work. And that changes your perspective on everything. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of getting used to. I, I kind of knew that I, I needed to to get off the nursing bra and not be in another government contract job or something like that. I mean, that was just my personal decision. Some guys really want to do it and that's, you know, that works great for different people. But I just knew that, uh, I got to break clean. I got to do something so different than the military that I'm not tempted to kind of fall back in line. And that's just me cutting the lifeboat. Yeah. So since you do have like one of those skills, that's actually translatable to a corporate realm, uh, job. Like what, what is your plan there, Michael? So, Another if I can surprise. ask, if that's yeah. okay. Yeah. What we didn't start out with was uh, I came from a tiny little farming community in Illinois. And uh, so I kind of grew up, you know, as a, a pseudo farmer, bailed I'm hay. from the Midwest side too, yeah. I know. There you go. So that's what I did. And uh, so I kind of knew a long time ago as far as flying that the airlines was not not going to do it for me. Like it's too, it's too sanitary. It's too sedentary. I can't sit for long periods <laughs> of time. You know, I get, I get irritable and agitated. Um I like being outside, you know, I like being solitary sometimes. Uh, anyway, so years and years I've had an affinity for, for old tailwheel airplanes, like vintage antique airplanes. And uh, so I've been flying, I own a couple, I've been flying for, for years doing that. And uh, so I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to try crop dusting. That's what I really want to do because <laughs> it suits all of my needs. It's a single place airplane. Nobody's talking to me. You live in the country. You know, it's very dynamic, precision flying. You know, you're 160 miles an hour, five feet off the ground all day long. At the end of the day, you're absolutely physically completely destroyed at the end of the day. And it's the best flying I have ever done. You know, and very, very little pitch um, for agricultural aviation. You know, a lot of people have this in their mind of the guy in bibbed overalls, you know, flying old biplane, you know, drunk. <laughs> just the movies to portray. Um, and I will tell you, it's every bit as demanding as anything I ever did in the 160th. You know, you don't generally have people shooting at you. Um, sometimes, depending on where we're here in the country, but <laughs> you know, we're, we're flying jet powered airplanes. You know, they're all computer guided. It's air conditioned. I mean, it's a highly technical, highly precise um, job. And you're out there by yourself all day. So anyway. So, in, so instead of doing nap of the earth for Southwest Airlines, you're going to be in the next sequel of Independence Day? Yeah. Yeah. Except that's the exact example I was talking about of what, what the industry is not. Uh, so about seven years I know. Ago, I'm just joking, man. Yeah, about seven years, but something like that. Yeah. Um, about seven years ago, um, I started taking everybody's cause we were doing 60 on 60 off or 90 on 90 off deployed. So I took everybody's Christmas and Thanksgiving deployments and I took all my leave in the summertime and went back to the Midwest and started learning the trade, you know, for my five weeks of leave in the summertime, which made my family immensely happy. But I tried to convince them like, Hey, there's going to be a payoff. You know, I know I'm giving up all our vacation time, but there's going to be a payoff. Um, probably a little longer baking time than they'd planned on for that. So I'd be back in the Midwest. Um, you know, I was learning to load on the ground and I started flying. So I go back every summer and fly crop dusters. And so I've flown for some really, really nice gentlemen in Illinois. Um, the taxes and the guns in Illinois made me decide I didn't want to retire in Illinois. So I started flying for another, uh, guy in Indiana, Northern Indiana in the last couple of seasons. And he wants to retire. So he and I have kind of struck up a deal. So I actually, um, uh, bought half of that company. So I own my own crop. Where at in Indiana? Uh, Middlebury, Indiana, two hours north of Indianapolis. 
So now you're getting ready to walk you right into an entrepreneurship type of arrangement then. Yeah. Yeah. That's now that's a learning curve. I was going to say a whole nother world, no whole nother set of challenges. But you have to remember also that uh, I do best when my back's against the wall. I've found that out. You know, if, if you gave me 10 months to learn something, I would wait until the week before to start cracking a book on it. We did a podcast on this, actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, seem, I seem to do my best work. Parkinson's law. Yeah. yeah. I, I do my best work under pressure, for sure. So um, I could have been doing research all these years. Turns out I'm going to do it three months before I start working. Yeah. Uh, but it'll be all right. <laughs> but like you said, you know what your purpose is. You know the direction that you're going into. You're going right back, you know, doing a 360. You're going right back into a comfort zone and something that you enjoyed when you were a child or you something you enjoyed even through your military career. Now you're going right back into that again. So it's still that um, that sense of comfort. I think what a lot of guys, when they get out of the military, they they may not know what their purpose or their passion is. And so they tend to flounder a little bit. Um, and I think what you did through your military career is constantly self-assess and realize that that was the one thing that was the grounding point in what you wanted to do. Yeah. But I also realized that it changes, you know, we talked about always changing your plan and, and, uh, nothing, nothing remains static. I'd say about every year I, there was a whole bunch of rabbit trails I went off that I thought I was going to do, but you pursue them, you know, to a certain point, like, all right, this isn't going to work. You know, either it doesn't pay or I don't want to live there or the job's not what I thought it was. So. I think it kind of self-defines yeah. how you work that. Absolutely. This wasn't exactly my plan. It just, by by elimination of all the other things, it's just kind of how it turned out. And it just turned out well, and I think that works out for everybody. You just got to kind of follow your nose to a certain extent. You got to love purposeful serendipity. Yep. You have to believe a little bit. There's a little bit of faith involved. I was going to wrap this up and asking you if, you know, now that you're, you've served all this time, you've been in different branches of the service, you served in soft in different communities, um, the whole gamut here. Now you're ready to make the transition out. If you had advice that you would give, whether it's guys that are entering the service from the military academy, people that are listening to this, that are midway through their career or whatever, what's the one bit of advice that you would give them through the whole process as it relates to your career and the things that you've learned? I do a lot of, like I said, I do a lot of leadership keynotes um, for youth groups, colleges, stuff like that. And uh, if there's one piece, and it's almost beyond the scope of the podcast, but I tell guys, I'm like, here's the thing. I said, I mentor, you know, a lot of guys wanting to go to BUDS, a lot of guys wanting to go into special operations, you know, military, all kind of stuff. And and what I always tell them is, I see it all the time, and I'm sure um, Scott and Eric do too, you probably do. I mean, you see guys that are my age or in their late 50s or whatever, you know, they're like, you know, I, I was thinking about going to Bud's or I, I, sh- I always wanted to be a ranger or I, I should have climbed Mount Everest or something. And I tell them, I'm like, man, there is, there is, there is nothing more tragic and sad than a 50 year old guy sitting at the bar or wherever at a barbecue and saying, and he's spending his entire life because at that point it's too late spending their entire life, a life of regret. Mm-hmm. And that is the most tragic thing as a man. I couldn't speak intelligently on a woman cause I still haven't figured them out, but <laughs> for a man, you, you haven't either. I know, I know, <laughs> you know, but, but for a man who, who values his self-worth, that is the most tragic thing you can do is to be our age, you know, and, and have regrets. And, and I don't even mean you need to be successful. I've told guys, I'm like, dude, I would have, if you went to buds, I just use that example cause I'm familiar with it. If you went to Buzz and you failed out the second day, at least you could spend the rest of your life saying, you know what? I tried it and it wasn't for me. It didn't work out for whatever reason, but I gave it a shot. You know, um, I'm a big fan of failing greatly. Um, if you half-ass everything, that, that's about what you're going to get out of it. So I think if you follow your nose to that extent, you will, uh, everything else kind of falls into place. That's, that's the hard part. Yeah. Once, once you get to where you're supposed to be, you know, it figures itself out. It does for everybody. Don't have any regrets. Yeah. No, no regrets. And that doesn't no mean you're stupid steps. Yeah. Don't run with the bulls or something that's going to get you killed, you know. But <laughs> as far as career stuff, um, you know, and I also tell them, too, I said, there's some responsibility. That doesn't mean, you know, like I said, be 55 and decide you're going to go be an MMA fighter. There's there's a little common sense. <laughs> you know, we, we know better. But when you're young and, you know, maybe you don't have a, a family or you don't need to make $100,000 a year to pay your bills. I mean, that's the time to go dare greatly. Um, 
you know, so I have to give some caveats because then someone comes back and is like, I totally you know, divorced my wife and, and joined the circus and it didn't work out. <laughs> I listened to mentors from military yeah. and that guy told me. Asterisk, <laughs> asterisk. Right. Yeah. yeah. So do it when you can, you know, just don't, don't have any regrets. Don't, don't be at the bar when you're 50 telling guys, you know, gosh, I wish I could have, I should have done that. I wish I'd been a ranger. I, you know, I want to do the long walk, whatever the case is. Michael, appreciate you coming on, man, and sharing your wisdom and your story because I think it's uh, pretty powerful. If an individual that, even though you may have gone through this whole thing and kind of stumbling and looking around and trying new experiences, it really said um, that you always went with your heart or your gut, whatever the case is. You just decided to take on additional challenges. You uh, decided to live your dream and your life. And like you said, at the end here, it's about no regrets. Absolutely. 